Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Good morning, church. How are you this Lord's Day? Blessed, amen. Well, as we customarily do, I want to invite you to open your Bibles for the reading of Scripture. I'll be speaking out of Exodus chapter 34 this morning, so please open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 34, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. The question I want to begin with this morning is very simply, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? That's the question that we are asking and answering over the next several weeks together. We are Christians, and together we all constitute a Christian church. And the most foundational message of our faith is the gospel message. The most foundational hope of our faith is the gospel hope. The very foundation of our faith is the gospel. And what I hope that we can begin to realize and appreciate as we work through this series of the next several weeks is that as Christians, the gospel is not something that we kind of begin in and then graduate from. Rather, we begin in the gospel and we keep returning to it. Uh, We begin in the gospel and we grow in the gospel. How do we grow in the gospel? We grow in the gospel by returning to it, by rehearsing it, by finding it everywhere throughout the pages of Scripture, uh, by sharing it with others. Whenever we think of the gospel, we want to immediately think of these four words, God, man, Christ, and response. God, man, Christ, and response. These are kind of like the four theological Lego bricks of the gospel, each one representing Um, a necessary part of its message, God, man, Christ, and response. So when we as Christians 
uh, and as a Christian church, have the opportunity to share the gospel, to bear witness to the gospel with others, uh, but maybe we're momentarily reluctant because we're not sure that we have a solid handle on the gospel. Maybe we feel a little bit intimidated because we're not confident we'll get it perfectly right. We just simply recall God, man, Christ in response, and we work through that out loud as we share with others. When we go through seasons as believers where we feel far from God, maybe where we're working through a dark night of the soul, we preach the gospel to ourselves. And when we preach the gospel to ourselves, when we rehearse it, we rehearse God, man, Christ, and response. And so these next several weeks are devoted to these four categories, God, man, Christ, response. Do you have them memorized yet? Okay, good. Now, I want to draw an important distinction very quickly. The gospel is the good news about Jesus, who is the Christ. And we can't understand the good news about Jesus until we first understand the news that that news presupposes, what comes before the good news of Jesus. You see, the gospel assumes some truths about God and about man, about who God is and about the condition of mankind, of humankind. Thus, we have God and man that precede Christ and response. And so, this weekend, we're going to be focusing on God. God, that's a big subject. He's a big subject, isn't he? Who is God? It's an appropriate question to begin with. What is he like? How do we know him? We could literally preach forever on the subject of God. As a matter of fact, there's a sense in which every week we preach, he's the subject of our preaching. But the first thing that we need to recognize about God, that we need to know about Him, is that His nature is personal. God is a personal God. He's not a force. He's not a power. He's not an impersonal being. To relate to God is not to relate to a power, but to relate to a person. God is a person, and as such, He has personal attributes or or qualities. And as we think about the gospel, specifically about the gospel, we should ask ourselves what qualities or attributes of God's person need to be, must be expressed. I want to suggest this morning that whenever we talk about God in the gospel, we need to rehearse at least three necessary attributes or or qualities of his person and their implications. So this morning we need to know that God is creator, that God is holy, and that God is righteous. God is creator, God is holy, and God is righteous. And it's only when we see God and when we can help others see God as the holy and righteous creator that we will comprehend the news of Jesus as good news. So first, we must see that God is creator. What is the Bible? The Bible is, at the most basic level, God's own self-disclosure to us. It is his story, his history from creation to new creation. And as such, God, he is its main subject. The Bible begins with God and it ends with God. And not only does it begin and end with God, the Bible also begins and ends with God speaking. The very first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did God create, church? He spoke. He created through His Word. And what do we see at the end of the Bible? The Bible concludes 
with the words of Jesus, God the Son, who is himself the Word, the Word made flesh, saying this, surely I am coming soon. And as you look at Revelation, uh, what is it that Jesus will usher in with him when he returns? New creation, restored creation. And so from beginning all the way to the end of the Bible, God places tremendous emphasis upon himself as creator. Can you see that? So in the beginning, after creating and and just ordering everything that exists, the totality of everything that is, uh, God's creation reaches its climax in his creation of us, in his creation of mankind. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27 say this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that lives on the earth. How many of us know that God has a sense of humor? I'm going to prove it to you. When I was growing up, um, my absolute least favorite tasks to complete in school When I say least favorite, I mean as in, like, I viewed these things as utterly loathsome and supremely undesirable. And those two things were book reports and classroom presentations. And the the rare combination of these two things was kind of, like, especially insufferable for me. Well, here I am. So God has a sense of humor. So when I'm like a young boy and I'm in school and I'm learning to like read and and to write thoughtfully and and to think critically um, and to prepare book reports and to prepare classroom presentations, uh, I was taught a certain set of questions, as were many of you uh, in elementary school, to kind of help aid in those tasks. And many of you remember these questions that we're taught to ask when we think critically about things. Who, what, when, where, why, and how, right? So how many of us remember these questions? When we think about the creation account, the creation account not only communicates the when of creation in the beginning, the who of creation that God created, the how of creation that God spoke, the what of creation that God created us, but also and especially the why of creation that God created us and imbued us with purpose. Look at Genesis 1. 26 through 27 again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God created us with purpose. He created us to image him, to be like him, to reflect him to the rest of creation. But not only did God create us in his image for that purpose, to reflect him, to bear him to the rest of creation, but he also gave us a very specific and special charter as his image bearers. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God's purposeful charter for humankind as his image bearers is to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill and to rule and to subdue his creation. God gave us his creatures a commission. 
And we were to be his vice regents and rule over all of creation on his behalf. He delegated rule to us. And even in some sense to put down evil because there was ruling and subduing involved. So the point is that the creator gives the creature significance and purpose. Can you see that? Creation tells us that we don't define our own meaning and purpose, but that he defines our meaning and purpose. And as creator, God did not only give us purpose, but he also gave us boundaries. He called for submission of our wills. He called for obedience. He exercised authority. Look at Genesis 2.16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so every time that Adam and Eve walked past that tree and observed its fruit, they had the opportunity in their obedience to God to say through their obedience, we love you, we trust you, we belong to you, And we affirm that you are good. You do not withhold any good thing from us. And so what I want us to recognize is this, that that implicit in each instance of their obedience to God was the acknowledgement of God's own creator authority over them. God has creator authority. Now, we all know what happened, of course. But embedded in the creation account is this most basic, but most profound and often missed truth. Because God created us, He has the right to tell us how to live. We're created, we're made, and therefore it follows that we are owned. And this fundamental truth of our human existence is the reservoir from which everything else flows. God created us and therefore God owns us. We cannot understand the good news of the gospel unless we first understand the bad news of sin. And at the most foundational, the most basic, the most elementary level, sin is our rejection of God's creator rights over us. Sin is a denial of the creator-creature distinction that He is creator He's the one that gives life. We are the creature. We receive life. He has authority. Sin is a rejection of God's creator rights over us. It's in, ver- in a very real sense our, our rebellious attempt as humanity at de-godding God, at taking his crown, at stealing his authority. It's our declaration of autonomy. Many theologians call sin cosmic treason. So the gospel begins with the recognition that God is creator and we are not. God is creator and we are not. But to understand properly how God must handle our rejection of his creator rights over us, our de-godding of him, our cosmic treason, we must begin to understand his character. So next we must see that God is holy. Just about the highest good, the highest value in our secular post-Christian culture today is 
is the value of tolerance. Now, tolerance can be a good thing, but I want to point out that elevating a potentially good thing to an absolute ultimate thing, um, especially in the case of tolerance, introduces all kinds of contradictions and problems. And mainly, it introduces the problem of the intolerance of tolerance. In other words, um, our modern notion of tolerance is itself intolerant of any statement or idea or worldview that has any kind of exclusivity built into it. So Jesus, for example, says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That might be the most exclusive statement made in all of human history. That's an exclusive claim. Jesus is saying that he is the only way. And by our culture standards, that is an intolerant statement. But tolerance itself is intolerant because it won't tolerate these kinds of exclusive claims. So tolerance is an absolute Ideal for any culture leads to absurdity. Can you see that? All that being said, the culture that we live in cannot stomach the idea that God would, for whatever reason, call any behavior sin that it finds desirable or good. It cannot cope with the reality that God will not, indeed He cannot, tolerate our sin. And the most fundamental reason for this is that people don't understand that God is holy, that He's holy. What does it mean to say that God is holy? What is holiness? Well, holiness in Scripture, as God has revealed Himself, is His chief primary attribute. Uh, the primary Old Testament word for holiness means to cut or to separate. And so holiness is a cutting off or a separation from what is unclean or impure or sinful. So God's holiness refers to His total, exclusive, exhaustive, absolute moral purity. His complete unmitigated separation from everything that is evil or improper. Consider what the Apostle John says about God's holiness in the New Testament. He says, this is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you. Heard from Jesus, John is saying. That God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And throughout the Bible, God calls His people to be holy as He's holy. Throughout the Old Testament, we hear God say to His people, Be holy, for I am what? Holy. And consider what Jesus Himself demands of the world. Matthew chapter 5. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Why would Jesus say this? Because God's standards for standard for acceptance is his own holiness. One of my favorite expressions um, of God's holiness in the Old Testament is found in one of the minor prophets in, in the book of Habakkuk, which focuses on a central issue. It focuses on God's dealing with all of the nations, especially the pagan, unrighteous, sinful nations, and, and, and even with his own people, the nation um, the people of Israel. And the book opens with a kind of lament to God. Um, God, why do you tolerate injustice among the nations? Why do you allow some wicked nations to perpetrate injustice and evil against, against other nations? And, and as, the, as the book opens up, we, we hear the prophet Habakkuk cry out to God in chapter 1. He says this, Your eyes are too pure 
to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? So he cries out to God. This is a lament that he offers up. And I want you to notice the progression of thought, the progression of Habakkuk's cry to God. It begins with a confession or an affirmation of God's character. You're holy. You're too pure to look on evil. You can't tolerate wrongdoing. But then it moves to a petition for God's action. Therefore, act. Why do you tolerate the treacherous? You're too pure. You're you're too holy to look on it. You can't tolerate wrongdoing. So then why do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? What I want to point out is that this prophet properly understands that there ought to be consequences for violating God's holiness. That not only can God not look upon sin, He cannot tolerate sin. Our culture's elevation of tolerance is idolatrous. It's an immediately like rebellious affront to God's holiness because God alone uh, determines what is and what is not sin. Uh, not only by virtue of the fact that He has creator rights, but also by virtue of the fact that He and He alone is holy. And all right and all wrong are objectively defined in relation to His nature, to His holiness. So the gospel begins with the recognition that God is holy and that we are not. Does that make sense? Finally, God is righteous. Growing up, my uh, dad's day off was always on Monday. You can probably guess why. Um, so it became kind of a tradition for us uh, as I was a young boy and, and growing up during football season to watch Monday night football together. The guys can hear the theme song going off in their head right now. You know what, like, you almost always saw during the 80s and 90s during a Monday night football game is like they pan the, the audience in the stadium? Yeah, like some guy... Some guy sitting in his seat holding up a John 3.16 sign, right? How, how many of you can like, yeah. So that's probably the most recognizable scripture reference for our culture. It's probably the most memorized verse, even for people who aren't believers in our culture. Um, and what does John 3.16 convey about God? Yeah, right. Which, which of his attributes does it kind of highlight or foreground? His love, right? For God so loved. Okay, so here's my point. Christians have done a pretty good job of communicating to our culture that God is loving. But we've done a pretty terrible job of conveying to our culture why John 3.16 is, in fact, good news. Most people think that since God is loving, that since God is love, that He just approves of us as we are and has no qualms whatsoever with whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. He's like this supremely accommodating old codger up in the heavens that will just let us do whatever we want. And because he's loving, he's happy to do it. But in thinking about God, people don't understand that sometimes a loving father says no. Furthermore, people don't comprehend that there are consequences to violating this loving father's no. So for once, I'd love to turn on a Monday night football game 
and see some dude holding in the standing in the stands holding up a sign that reads Psalm 97:2. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Righteousness and justice. You know, God is repeatedly described in scripture and especially in the Psalms in terms of his righteousness and justice. Psalm 11:7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Psalm 33, 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. You see, his righteousness and justice are always held together with his love. Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Righteousness and justice. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Tragically, our culture has a view of God that has isolated exclusively his love at the expense of his righteousness and his justice. But more than once, you read in the Psalms, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Let's think about this for a minute. What's the purpose of a throne? What does it represent? What is it a symbol of? It's a symbol of authority. It's a symbol of power. It's a symbol of sovereignty. It's indicative of the authority, the right to rule. And when the Bible speaks of God's throne, it's using kind of this vivid uh, picture or, or image to describe His rule, to describe His reign. So when the psalmist says more than once that righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne, the psalmist is declaring that the starting point the bedrock, the essence, the very foundation of God's reign over His creation are His righteousness and His justice. He loves righteousness and justice. So this would be a good point to ask the question, what is righteousness? Righteousness is the fulfillment of just expectations. It means that God will always do what is right and what is good. Um, righteousness is, as a behavior is kind of that which fulfills expectations or requirements um, in, in relationship. To always do what is right, to always do what is fitting, to always, to always do what is just. God is righteous in that He speaks and acts in accordance with the purity of His own holy nature. And in righteousness, God always vindicates, upholds His holiness. We can't understand the good news of the gospel if we do not first understand that God cannot not be righteous. He cannot not be just. Because righteousness and justice characterize the very foundation of His throne, Scripture says. It's not only the case that God is righteous, but that He reigns in righteousness. It's not only the case that God is just, but that He reigns in justice. Now, I want to draw a distinction. Whereas God's holiness will not allow Him to look upon or tolerate sin, God's righteousness requires Him to punish sin. Requires it. And just as God cannot make Himself not exist... Just as he cannot make a circle square, just as he cannot make a married bachelor, for these are all contradictions, God cannot 
exhibit unrighteousness or injustice because doing so would be a violation of His very essence, His very nature. You might have noticed by now that I opened by reading from Exodus 34, but haven't yet referred back to it once. So I want to return our attention to that really magnificent moment between God and Moses on Mount Sinai. So what's going on uh, on Mount Sinai with God and Moses in Exodus 34? Well, we know that that God's people were in captivity in Egypt, and God demonstrates His faithfulness and grace by bringing them out, by bringing plagues upon the Egyptians and Pharaoh, ultimately compelling him to let his people go. God leads His people out of captivity, um, prefiguring how God would ultimately lead His new covenant people out of captivity to sin. God leads His old covenant people out of captivity. They wander in the desert, and over and over and over, God makes provision for them. They complain, they grumble, but God is gracious over and over and over. Eventually, God makes a covenant with them through Moses. He gives them His law, He gives them, which is an expression of His holiness and His righteousness. He gives them, um, He makes them His covenant people. And so we see God, His grace exhibited over and over and over through Exodus. And, and so God calls Moses up onto Mount Sinai. And he meets with him there in a profoundly personal way. God appears. He manifests His presence with Moses. And He gives him the law. He gives him the Ten Commandments. He gives him the tablets. And while Moses is up on the mountaintop communing with God, after all of God's faithfulness that He's exhibited to the people, what are they doing down in the valley? They're sinning, right? They're, they've constructed a golden calf. They're worshiping it. They're like immersed in idolatry while God, God, the one true God, has personally manifested His presence with their leader Moses up on the mountain, is covenanting with Him, giving Him His law, giving them an identity. Moses comes down the mountain. He finds them just immersed in, in idolatrous worship, just immersed in sin. And what does Moses do? He smashes the tablets that God gave him, kind of dra- dramatizing how they've smashed God's covenant by engaging in idolatry. And, and now Moses realizes that not only does he have no tablets, but he also has to act as a mediator between God and the people. He has to plead on their, be- on their behalf because they've sinned. Does that make sense? So we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 34. And God calls Moses, because God is gracious. He doesn't just smite them out of existence. He's gracious. He's redemptive. So he calls Moses back up the mountain. And this is where we pick up. And Moses has asked God, show me your glory. God's like, okay, I'll show you my glory. So look at Exodus 34, verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And if you're Moses, you're thinking, this is good news. 
Because what have the people just done? And what has he come up the mountain to do but mediate for them in light of their sin, their idolatry? And God reveals himself, reveals his name, his character in these terms, that he's merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, which is what they need him to keep, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, which is what they need from him. So far, so good, right? You see, everything that God has revealed about himself to Moses so far is thoroughly agreeable to them, to us, and even to the culture that we live in because there is nothing that God has expressed yet which is threatening. Rather, it's supremely comforting. Look at the very next word. But. But. Who will by no means clear the guilty. But who will by no means clear the guilty? You see, these nine words utterly explode most people's view of God. These words smash, obliterate most people's view of God. God is perfectly loving, but it doesn't follow from his perfect love that he is therefore a cosmic pushover because that would make God a moral coward. I love my kids more than just about anything else in this world, but it doesn't follow that I let them do whatever they want or, or that there aren't consequences when they do whatever they want. And, and God doesn't stop here with Moses. He intensifies his position as if to put an exclamation point on his righteousness, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You see, this is an expression of God's holiness. It's an expression of His righteousness. It's indicative of how seriously He takes sin, how seriously He takes our sin, how seriously He must take sin by virtue of His character. Remember, He loves righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. I want us to see for just a moment something that's easy to miss but infinitely important in this passage as we consider the question, what is the gospel? You see, how can God simultaneously be both merciful and righteous? You see, because mercy withholds punishment that is deserved. Righteousness upholds punishment that is deserved. So how can God simultaneously be one who withholds punishment that is deserved, but also upholds punishment that is deserved? Do you see the tension? How can God be one who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet simultaneously one who will by no means clear the guilty? This is precisely how he reveals himself to Moses. Before we deal with the tension in God's words to Moses, we must first deal with what Moses does in response to God's words. Verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped because he saw the impossible situation that they were in. And, and he got a taste of the glory of God. And all he can do in that moment is plead for God's mercy, cast himself in 
and the well-being of his people on God's mercy, knowing that God would be perfectly just to mete out as a function of his righteousness punishment for their sin. And so Moses pleads with God. Verse 9, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. In part in our iniquity and our sin, take us for your inheritance. The gospel begins with the same recognition that Moses had in that moment, that God is righteous and we are not. In conclusion, God is creator. He's our creator. And as such, God has creator rights over us. And in our sin, we have rejected those creator rights and insisted on our own autonomy. And in doing so, each of us is guilty in some sense of cosmic treason. And God is holy. God can't tolerate sin. Our sin has separated us from God. We can't even stand in His presence because He dwells in unapproachable light. That's why in this account right before it, God told Moses and hid Moses in the cleft of the rock before he just peeled back the veil of his glory just a little bit and unveiled it passing by declaring his name and character because Moses as a sinful fallen man could not even continue to exist in the midst of God's unmitigated glory. And finally, God is righteous and it follows from his righteousness that God must deal with, he must punish sin. Though God is loving and kind and merciful, and we must always affirm those parts of His character, He cannot simply look past our sin. He can't just give it a pass. He can't just kind of pretend like it never happened. He can't sweep it under the rug, as Greg Gilbert says in the book that we've given you, like an unscrupulous janitor. And even if He could, we wouldn't want an unrighteous God like that. God said to Moses that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But he can't just forgive arbitrarily. He can't just forgive our sin because that would violate his holiness and it would subvert his righteousness. Which is why God also tells Moses that he will by no means clear the guilty. And as we work through this message this morning, hopefully we're all beginning to see the contours of the gospel more clearly. God, man, Christ, response. God and man. God is creator. We are not. God is holy. We are not. God is righteous. We are not. Scripture says that the wages of sin is death. As Pastor Andrew pointed out last week, wages are something that we earn. Our sin earns death in judgment. God, man, Christ. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is Christ a gift? A gift because we can't earn Him and because we don't deserve Him and because He's freely given and because Christ is the only solution to the problem we face standing rightly under God's judgment as a function of His holiness and righteousness. 
And because Christ is the only way that God can simultaneously forgive iniquity and transgression and sin and yet by no means clear the guilty because Christ became the guilty party for us. God's righteous justice demands that human nature which has sinned must pay for sin. And a sinful human could never pay for others. But a sinless human could. And a sinless human did. Jesus Christ, the righteous. In his humanity, Jesus paid the full penalty for our sin. In his divinity, Jesus bore the weight of God's wrath against our sin, earned for us and restores to us righteousness and holiness and eternal life. You see, Jesus, as I have said and as we will continue to say, is the one mediator between God and man. As a man, Jesus represents us to God, and as God, Jesus represents God to us. He alone reconciles at the cross God's mercy with God's righteousness. Jesus the true and better mediator, makes it possible, he alone makes it possible for God to reveal himself as he did to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Because Jesus took our sins upon himself. God's justice has been perfectly satisfied. His righteous wrath appeased. His mercy and steadfast love are extended to us to be received by faith. That he might take us, his children, never again to be estranged by sin. Fully and finally and forever adopted as his own. That is good news. That is the good news of Jesus. That is the gospel. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God, man, Christ. And that is news that demands a response. God, man, Christ, response. I'm going to pray in just a moment. You can take the lights down. The only question remaining is this. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and God has convicted you of your sinfulness and of your sins and you know that you stand condemned under his holiness and righteousness, Will you respond to the offer that he has extended to you through his son? I want to give you an opportunity to confess your sin, to admit your need for deliverance, for forgiveness, your need for Christ, and to put your, tro- your trust, your hope, and your confidence in him. So if that's you, I just want to ask, while everybody else's heads are bowed, if you would just simply respond in faith, that you trust in Jesus by raising your hand. Anybody this morning? I see that hand in the front. I see that hand back there. I see that hand right over there. 
I see that hand over on the aisle. Praise God. Wonderful. If that's you, just pray this prayer of response with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for giving me eyes to see the truth this morning. I thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. I put my full trust and hope and confidence in Jesus, that he was my substitute, that he paid for my sin, and that by trusting in him, I can receive by faith forgiveness and newness of life. I put my hope in you, and I give you thanks. And I pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.